Evidence and Answers. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. This week, we are listening to one of the messages from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from around the nation. Our theme this year was Evidence of Life Beyond the Grave and featured noted Christian scholars, Dr. Gary Habermas and Dr. Ron Rhodes. Today, we will hear part one from a study entitled Resurrection, Ultimate Proof of Life Beyond the Grave, taught by Dr. Gary Habermas. Without delay, here's Dr. Habermas. Let me ask a question tonight. How would you know, or how would you answer the question, how do we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Years ago, I was having dinner with my family, and my then eight-year-old son, Rob, said, Dad, how do we know that Jesus is raised from the dead? Now, half of my books are on the resurrection, 20 of them on that subject, and I thought, well, this is interesting. Okay, well, Rob, let's try it. You know how you talk over dinner, and you get a little bit in here, and pass the corn, and a little bit in there, and I said, Rob, tell me something. How do you know George Washington's the first president of the United States? He said, no, Dad. How do we know Jesus raised the dead? And I said, no, Rob. How do we know that George Washington's first president of the United States? And he's eight years old, and he's kind of looking. He goes, now I'm afraid to do anything. And he said, I don't know. I think we need some books. I said, what kind of books? And he said, old ones. I said, what kind of old books? It'd be nice if we had books from people who knew George Washington. Okay, that'd be cool. Who would you like them from? Well, Dad, didn't he fight in some battle or something? Yeah, it's called the Revolutionary War. Well, then how about somebody that tells us how he was like a general? Okay. How about as a family man? Yeah, yeah. How about Martha? his wife. How about his president? You know, do we have anything from Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Monroe, and so on? And he said, okay. And we went on eating our meal, and I forgot to get to the resurrection of Jesus. About two weeks later, we were talking. I said, hey, Rob, how did that go with your Sunday school teacher on the resurrection? He said, oh, 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 he came to class and he said, how do we know Jesus is raised from the dead? He said, Rob. And Rob said, how do we know George Washington's the first president of the United States? <laughs> That's a true story. And the teacher said, what? And they thought about it. He said, you're Habermas's son, aren't you? <laughs> now, from that little story, here's my point. We answer questions about the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus the same way we answer questions about history in general. You look for certain kinds of evidence. Now, there's all kinds of prerequisites for what good history is, and you got some of that on the table back there in some of my works if you're interested. How do we do history? Well, we need some old books, and we need some old sources. And it'd be neat to have some interviews with people. 
but we lose our living witnesses after about a hundred years. And after that, we rely on testimonies. And some archaeology helps, you know. If George Washington fought in the Revolutionary War, maybe we could go to Fort Ticonderoga in New York and see what that fort was like. And there's a sign there in Fort Ticonderoga that said, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson walked under this arch. Okay, that's cool. So we get an idea of what this looks like by checking things out archaeologically, and we ask questions. Does this all make sense? Are there any alternative explanations? And so on. I'm going to apply that kind of reasoning to the resurrection tonight. What I just described is called historiography, the doing of history. How would you know history if it hit you between the eyes? How would you know an historical event? Now, I want you to watch for some of these things, because as Rob said, we want old books. That means we want sources that are back close to the time. Now, we say old books from our viewpoint, but from the viewpoint of the event, the word would be early. We want early material. And it'd be nice to have eyewitness material. Now, keep these in mind. Here's what we can call the two E's. Early material, eyewitness material, and you do history, whether it's George Washington or Jesus, history of Jesus isn't some mystical, secret history. It's normal history. And so therefore we want to use normal methods. All right, now, talking about methods, let me introduce my method tonight. I'm going to say a few words and I'm going to start walking on this timeline for the rest of the lecture. I'm going to tell you how we have early sources for the resurrection. I call my method the minimal facts method. Now, a lot of times I go to state universities, and I've been doing this for a long time, decades, and I love speaking at state universities. I love dealing with skeptics. And in the old days, we would be invited to a campus by a Christian group on campus. Just today, I got an email inviting me to come to University of Virginia. That's neat. But lately, there's been a new trend, at least in my speaking. Christian events are co-sponsored on campuses between a Christian group and an atheist group. And sometimes both presidents want to get up and say something before you start. So here's the president of Campus Crusade, InterVarsity, Baptist Student Union, you know, navigators, whatever. And then somebody stands up from the other side, and it's the Free Thinker Society. They don't usually like to call themselves atheists, but... Freethinker Society, or something like that. Agnostics United of America. I don't know. Sounds like there should be a drum and a fife following them. Okay, and they're there together. And afterwards, they come up and we talk, and I tell them I'll stay there till the janitor kicks us out. I'll stay here all night and answer questions. That's cool. And I usually am asked to speak on the resurrection. Why would unbelievers want to hear the resurrection? Well, they really don't. But they know the resurrection is the center of Christianity. And if they want to disprove Christianity, they've got to go after the resurrection. Because if they get the heart, the rest of the animal dies, right? And something will happen to Christianity if we lose the resurrection. So I'll start out with them, and I'll tell them my methodology. Here's my method. I'm going to use only data tonight, only facts, only material, only research that is shared by both sides, believers, unbelievers, both sides. And I'm only going to use facts which skeptics, my only prerequisite is they have to be scholars. Anymore, the definition of scholarship has changed. 
It's kind of strange. I get emails like this. Well, I'm a scholar. I've got some publications. It's called a blog. <laughs> oh, well, and I want to discuss the resurrection with you on my blog. I'm a specialist. Oh, you are, huh? How old are you? 21? How far did you get in school? I'm not in school. Kind of a self-made person, aren't you? Just kind of finding all this on your own. So if you're going to find out about George Washington, do you want to spar with a George Washington specialist? Probably not. But they like doing this. Tell you a bunch of stories about interacting with these folks. I'll start talking to them and I'll say, I'm going to use your material. Now, one thing you've got to hear. When you hear my dissertation committee, when I did my dissertation at Michigan State University, my committee said to me, you can do a dissertation on the resurrection of Jesus, but caution, don't say it happened because the Bible said it happened. This is State University. We can't take that answer. We're liberal, he said, but we're liberal in the good way. We're liberal like this. You can say whatever you want to say as long as you have backup. But don't tell us it's true because the Bible said it happened. Now, tonight, I'm going to use the New Testament. You said, whoops, you're cheating. No, I'm not. Listen real carefully to my method. If I don't use the New Testament, critics will. Now, here's my only prerequisite. Like I said, they've got to be critical scholars. They've got to know the field. And critics, I don't care how far to the left they are. I don't care if they're atheists. And there are some atheist New Testament professors out there. How would you like your kids to be taught by them? Hi, I'm the New Testament professor. I'm an atheist. Let's get started. That happens. But they're going to tell you that there are facts in the New Testament. They don't say everything in the New Testament's a myth. How do you know they're facts? How do you know George Washington's first president of the United States? You apply the same methodology, and they say they'll give you, let's just, I don't know, but let's say in the New Testament, there are a hundred reports concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's say a hundred different things are reported. And this guy might say, I'm an atheist. I'm really, really liberal. I'm only going to give you 20 of 100. I'm only going to give you 20%. And then here's my response. I'll take your 20. In fact, I don't need your 20. You're giving me way more evidence than I need. I'll take 12. No, better yet, I'll take five. How do I know that my five is the same as his one, five of his 20? How is that? Because the facts I'm going to use are accepted by all of them because they have fantastic evidence. So much so that atheists will almost never object to what I'm saying, except till we get to the punchline about what happened. One time, a person took a list of facts I give, I use, that I pull out of the New Testament, and he sent it to probably the best-known atheistic scholar in this country. And he said, the guy who told me this was an atheist, so yeah, it's, it's hearsay, but it came from a, two atheists, not from a believer. And he said, I asked this guy what you thought about Habermas's facts, and he said, no problem. Habermas can use those facts all he wants, because they're historical facts. He can use them. So that's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to use the skeptics' facts. Now, you may not be aware of this, but I will use almost nothing up here. Well, I'm going to start. I'm going to do some, When you see me, I'm going to do some, some things down that side. This side is a little different. But once I start working on this side, I'm going to use the skeptics' facts. 
And I'm going to show you how you can argue the resurrection. Now, one more thing. This is not a difficult lecture. It's full of historical facts. So you're going to say, whoa, I was overwhelmed with details. But you won't say, I didn't understand them. They're very easy to grasp. I have done this lecture for second graders. I did it for a sixth grade Christian class in a Phoenix, Arizona Christian school. I've given this lecture at Oxford University and at Cambridge University to PhD students and Cambridge professors. It's very simple, it's very versatile, not hard to remember, although there's a lot of details. And I hope you'll be able to take it and use it with your friends because you can use it in witnessing situations. You can use it in a Sunday school class. You can use it anywhere. It's not difficult. Okay. I'm only going to use two passages of scripture, two chapters, and critics everywhere will let me use these texts. Why? Because critics, New Testament scholars, will allow you to use seven of the 13 books that bear Paul's name. Now, here's the old question. If your church goes liberal, what do you do? Do you stay and fight it for the sake of people who are going to be taken in, or do you leave and go to a Bible-believing church? And Christians are going to divide. I'm going to stay and fight. No, I'm leaving. There's two different perspectives on how to handle this. Same thing here. If somebody says to me, talk to me about the resurrection. I'm an unbeliever. Talk to me about the resurrection, but I'm only going to let you use seven of Paul's 13 books. Do you say to him, unless you give me all 13, I won't talk to you? Because they'll just say, fine, we won't talk. Or, if I can make a case for seven, should I take the seven? I'm going to take the seven tonight. And they are unanimous about the books they allow. Bart Ehrman is probably the best-known skeptic in the U.S., a New Testament scholar, former evangelical. He calls himself an agnostic leaning toward atheism. And he'll say, here's the seven undisputed Pauline epistles, if you're interested. Romans, First and Second Corinthians... Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, Philemon. Now, sometimes they'll pick one of the other ones, but virtually nobody, you can count the scholars on one hand out of the hundreds who will disagree with those seven books. And I'm going to use just two texts, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the end of Galatians 1, the beginning of Galatians chapter 2. Because in the originals, you may know this, there were no chapter and verse dividings. That's for us to find the text in church and have devotions and so on. But they weren't there in the originals. So the end of Galatians 1, beginning of Galatians 2 is a single text. And 1 Corinthians 15, single text. That's all I'm going to ask for. They will give it to me. Now, you say, well, what do you mean they'll give it to you? They don't believe Paul's inspired, but they believe Paul's authoritative. What's authoritative mean? Here's the critic's view of Paul. He studied under top-notch scholars, Gamaliel and others. He was a Pharisee. In other words, basically, he went to graduate school. Sharp guy, great mind. He said, how do they know he's got a great mind? Anthony Flew, until he became a theist late in his life, was the best-known philosophical atheist in the world. And here's what Anthony Flew used to say. Paul has a first-class philosophical mind. How would an atheist know that? And Flew would say, read the book of Romans. That's all you do. You don't have to agree with it. Just read the book of Romans. You'll see that this man could put an argument together. First class philosophical mind. You know what he called Jesus? This world famous atheist. 
He called him a first-rate ethical philosopher, ethicist and a philosophical mind. He called Jesus and Paul. Just read them. Now, he was a scholar, grad student, let's say, a Pharisee, could write, understood what he wrote, could put an argument together. And here's the real important thing. He was in the right place at the right time, knew the right people, and he's a great source. Now, he could be wrong, the critics think, but he'll be honest. He won't lie. He's an honest person driven by what he believed to be the truth, and so you can use these texts. They will not object to me using these texts. And that's what I'm going to do. 1 Corinthians 15 starts like this. Paul says, I gave you what I was given, in verse 3. But the first two verses, before he gets there, he says this. When I came to you, Corinthians, I preached the gospel. If you believed it, you're saved. And if you didn't, you're not. Pretty straightforward. When I came to you, I preached the gospel. If you believed it, you're saved. And if not, you're not. What's the gospel? The gospel has two sides. What God did, what we do. Actually, the gospel is the God side, and what we do is our response to it. But whenever the gospel is defined in the New Testament, it always involves a minimum. Other things get in there sometimes in the definition, but these three things are always present. Deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Deity, death, resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection. That's the gospel. So when Paul says, I preached to you the gospel, he said, I preached to you the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus, and now, if you believed it, you're saved, and if not, you're not. Let's talk about it, he says. Verse 3. I gave you what I was given. And a lot of times in churches I'll say, do you all hear that? It's very, very easy, but it's very, very profound. Paul is the professor here. And listen to his words. I gave you what I was given. Josephus tells us that the Pharisees learned by passing tradition down to their students. And the students took the material and passed it down to the next generation. That's why Paul later says, I pass this on to my disciples, and they pass it on to others, and that's how we further the church message. I gave you what I was given. Now, what's the average Christian say if you said to them, how do you know that what Paul gave us on the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the deity of Christ, although I won't be able to talk too much about that tonight, but how do we know it's reliable? Let's see if we can do for Jesus, through Paul, what we did for George Washington. That was more than a cute example. I want to ask, do we do history the same way we do for George Washington? And my answer is yes. All right, let's get started. This is ground zero. This is... The crucifixion. I say ground zero because scholars aren't agreed when it happened. The most popular year is 30 AD. The second most popular year, you might say, well, it's got to be 29 or 31. Eh. Second most popular year, 33. But 30 is a nice round year, so let's call this ground zero, and everything will be plus and minus 30. This is zero point. And what kind of sources do we want? Well, at least two E's, early and eyewitness. Do we have early and eyewitnesses? for the earliest Christian data, which would involve at least the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Now, most Christians argue like this. Well, if you want to learn these things, take a look at the Gospels. Now, Mark's going to be about here. Now, I'm going to use, quote-unquote, liberal dating, because my method is to use their data, and it makes almost no difference. Their dates are only a little bit later than ours. 
Mark is about 70 AD, according to critics. Now, you all think through this with me. If Mark's 70, it is plus what? Plus 40. This book is plus 40. Critics put Matthew at 80 or plus 50. Luke at 85 or plus 55. And everybody puts John at about 95 or plus 65, right? You subtract 30 from 95. This is 60 years later. Now, this is not old. This is not late. I heard of a man years ago who was writing his memoirs of World War II. And he was writing in 1990. Now, depending on when World War II was, that could be 50 years earlier. 50 would be right about here. And this is only 15 years later. Now, I had a debate last year. I hate debates, but I always end up having them. Doesn't kind of work like that. I was debating a well-known atheist, and he got up and he told the group, we were at a seminary, and he told this group of graduate students, he said, the Gospels are lousy sources because they're written too late after the cross. Okay, so wait a minute. Mark's too late at plus 50? This is their date. Evangelicals, by the way, put this Mark back about 10 years, put Matthew and Luke back about 20 years, and they agree on John, just so you know. All right, and Matthew's only 50? That's the guy who writes the World War II memoirs. Luke 55, John 65. Good historiographical grounds. And he said, the texts are too old. So we're having our dialogue part, and I started talking to him, and I said, let me ask you something. Gospels are not good sources, right? He said, nope, too late. I said, really? I'm thinking to myself, you know, you should know a little more about history. You shouldn't be talking about things you don't know. I didn't say that, but I felt like saying that. And I said to him, do we know very much about Alexander the Great? Oh, yeah. We know a lot about Alexander the Great, do we? You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. How good are our sources for Alexander the Great? Real good. All right. If that's the death of Alexander, ground zero, about 330 B.C., if that's the death of Alexander, when are our earliest texts? Our earliest complete text for Alexander's life, earliest one, is 350 years after ground zero. The best text for Alexander's life? Arian and Plutarch plus four and a quarter to 450. John's too late at 65, yep. But Arian and Plutarch are just peachy at 425 to 450, yep. I like consistency, and I like fairness. He said, yeah, but the Gospels have miracles in them. <laughs> okay, so you can't accept miracles, right? No, but you'll accept Alexander, right? Yep. Plutarch's Alexander starts like this. It's commonly believed that Alexander was the son of Jupiter and his mother was a virgin. <laughs> it's really good that these guys wrote without miracles. He said, we don't think that stuff's true. But you think we can know stuff about Alexander, right? Tell me what's wrong with this evidence. 
Didn't have an answer. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers. And I hope you enjoyed listening to one of our messages from this past year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme was Evidence of Life Beyond the Grave and featured a wonderful lineup of scholars who presented fascinating and inspiring seminars. If you would like a copy of all the seminars from this past year's conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers.